started, fourth and final time. First of all, I just want to thank, uh, really, Corey and Heather for inviting me to even do this. It's been a privilege and an honor, I'll be honest. Uh, never done something like this, but when I was asked, I honestly was trying to think, what would I have wanted at your age at camp? And I'm like, I try to think of really four of the more, most important things I've ever been taught or, or, or someone proved to me or whatever, and I, that's why I came up with what I came up with. It was just my heart saying, man, this is what I would have wanted when I was in high school. So hopefully it's been helpful to you, challenging to you, and hopefully this last, last one will do the same. If you would, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2 and to the last uh, set of notes there called the Three Chairs. That's the title of this message today, this afternoon. And after you get to Judges chapter 2, we're going to actually start on the study sheet in the introduction. So I'll wait for you to get to Judges 2. Let me know when you're ready, but then have your notes ready because we're going to start filling in right on the study sheet with the introduction. All right, ready to go? Here we go. The three chairs. The three chairs represent three generations of believers. How does one explain the failure of most Christians to produce a faithful lineage? History records the absence of godly grandchildren. The third generation of believers in families is missing regardless of where you look. You won't find them behind the pulpit, on the mission field, or even in church very often. Sadly, this is the fulfillment of a spiritual form of the second law of thermodynamics, which we talked about in evolution study, but it's where things always are getting worse, running out. This is, just happens in life. We can't seem to pass on our faith to the next generation properly. Well, today we're going to examine how this third generation is formed with an aim toward avoiding the patterns that lead to sitting in the third chair. How many of you are familiar with... Uh, uh, the, the musical Hamilton. Raise your hand if you're familiar with it. How many of you, if you know, you, you know the lyrics to some of the songs in Hamilton? Okay, well, there's actually a, a song there called Wait For It, and it's sung by a gentleman named Aaron Burr, and he's a, he's a former vice president in our history. Okay, well, the reason I tell you that, Aaron Burr is the villain, so to speak, in the Hamilton musical, because in history he's the villain. He was a womanizing... Uh, uh, unfaithful to his wife, traitorous, murderous, vice president of the United States of America. He was our third VP under J Thomas Jefferson. And while he was vice president, he literally murdered Alexander Hamilton, who was on your $10 bill. He was the first secretary of the treasury. They had a political disagreement, and he murdered him in a duel. All right? The reason I tell you that story is Aaron Burr is the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, who was literally one of the greatest preachers America's ever seen, and he was really partly responsible, him and George Whitfield, for the great awakening in America where thousands upon thousands repented and trusted the Savior. And it's really in the 1700s was when that happened, when Jonathan Edwards was preaching and George Whitfield, it lit this country on fire to the point where I mean, it's why we have a good country to this day. I think God blessed it for quite a while. Unfortunately, I feel like his hand of blessings coming off. But I didn't know if you knew that story, but Jonathan Edwards' grandson was Aaron Burr. So don't think just because your parents are Christians, you're going to be okay and your grandchildren are going to be okay. It doesn't seem to work out that way. 
And it doesn't, seem, doesn't have to not work that way. I'm just letting you know there seems to be a spiritual generational drift that happens that I'm here to warn you about. And um, if you're in Judges 2, we're, we're almost there. I do want to read a, a couple verses in Exodus. You don't need to turn there. I'm there and I'll just read them to you. They're Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And it says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, uh, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So not only is it hard to pass on faithfulness to our children and grandchildren, it seems like it's kind of easy to pass on sin. That's what seems to multiply without, you know, with ease. So if you're in Judges chapter 2, that's where I'm going to turn, and that's where we're going to base this study off of. But I need to explain some things. I'm going to hand this to you. I don't need it. Um, Judges chapter 2. I just want to give, for those of you not super familiar with where you're at in the Bible, Moses, God calls Moses. He leads, he leads Moses to go... Um, Israel, the Israelites are in bondage in Egypt. Okay, they're slaves in Egypt, and he sends Moses. You're going to deliver them from Egypt. He crosses them. He, you know, he goes in, confronts Pharaoh, leads them across the Red Sea. You guys familiar with this? Not if you're like understanding what I'm talking about. He takes them, you know, and they start heading towards the promised land, right? They end up wandering for 40 years on the way to the promised land, which is the nation of Israel today. It's, it's still where it's located to this very day, which is a miracle. But Moses dies before they enter. And before Moses dies, he passes the torch to Joshua. Joshua, whose name literally means Jesus. He's like an Old Testament picture of Jesus himself. Um, he leads them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. He's the one conquering Jericho and Ai. And they, they, they take over the Promised Land and they, they possess their inheritance that God gave them. That's what Joshua does. Well, now we're picking up. It's the book of Judges. Joshua is getting ready to die. Look in Judges chapter 2. Look in verse 6. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Josh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Theres, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaesh. And also all that generation were gathered under their fathers. So all those that had even seen the works of the Lord, they died. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel." And this is, unfortunately, a pattern that's going to go on in Judges. They just keep doing this. But there's, you have Joshua. They knew Joshua. Remember, he represents, he's Jesus. And I'm telling you, they knew him. He dies. Well, that generation that had met him, like the apostles or whatever you want to consider it, they, they knew him and knew his works. And then you have this other group that, that just forsakes the Lord and doesn't even know him. That's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to, now we're going to start working your way down through this uh, table that I've made in your notes. And we're going to work left to right, just like you'd read a book, left to right. So that'll help you, hopefully. So we're going to start with number one. 
on generation one and chair one. Each chair represents a generation. So chair one is they know God and his works. And if you could go to the next one, Elliot. And this generation represents Joshua and those that knew him well. They, 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 they loved Joshua, knew him, followed Joshua. Generation two, they know about God and his works. And that's generation two. Those that saw great works, they saw them. And they, they seemingly remained faithful a little bit, but obviously something happened here because generation three, they know not God or his works. Somebody forgot to disciple somebody. Somebody forgot to teach them what God said. And that's the next one. Gener those who knew not God and, or the Lord or his works. So now we're going to look at some characteristics of these things as we, as we, of each generation or each chair, so to speak. So number two there on your uh, table, the key word for chair one would be they're committed. Not, is that a blank or not a blank? It's in. Good for me. Okay. <laughs> key word for number two is compromised. And the key word for generation three is rejected. And that's what starts to happen. We start to compromise in some areas and think it's okay to do this. And we're going to go through that. You'll see it. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But their focus, generation one, their focus is God himself. Generation uh, two, their focus is people and serving. Not a bad thing necessarily, but their focus is not God. And then generation three, their focus is self or things. It's all about them. Me, me, me. Generation one, their motivation. It's Bible convictions that don't change. John 7, 24 says we're to judge righteous judgment. That's what, that's, what, that's what generation one cares about. Righteousness and judging right judgments in your life and every, everywhere else. Uh, generation two, their motivation are beliefs that are changeable, potentially. And that's Proverbs 24, 21, talking about, be careful about changeable stuff and, and meddling with things given to change. And then number four, for generation three, their motivation is all about happiness. They just want to be happy. What makes me happy? And then generation one, what is their concern? Their concern is of one thing. What does God think? What God thinks. Generation two's concern is what do people think? You see, generation one, before I go on to generation three, generation one, you know why? They, they care what God thinks because they fear God. Yeah. Generation two, they care what people think because you know what? They fear men. Let me tell you something. You're fearing somebody. That's what happens in life. You're going to fear God or you're going to fear men. The reason some of you dress like you do, talk like you do, act like you do is because you want to impress men or women. That's the issue. If you fear God, you care just what he thinks. So generation three, however, their motivation, uh, their concern is not just what people think, it's what I think. And uh, so generation one feared God, they feared men in generation two. Well, generation five becomes fearless, which sounds tough. Oh, I'm fearless. But quite frankly, it's like a death wish. All you got to do is look at Hollywood celebrities. How many Hollywood celebrities have just totally ruined their lives because they're fearless? They think they can do anything and then they die an early death. I could go over all of them right now. I mean, there's just many that have just died an early death because 
sadly, they were fearless. Okay, now we're going to look at characteristics of each one, and, and there's no numbers after this. This is number six, and I just put bullet points on all these. These are all characteristics. We're still working left to right, though, on your study sheet and in that table. So characteristics. Generation one, they have a radical life change at conversion. Generation two has an emotional conversion, no obvious change. And then generation three, no conversion at all. Just no conversion. Um, generation one, back to them, they, they um, want and desire salvation for righteousness sake. We need righteousness. We realize we lack it. And there's only one way to get it. And that's to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Sadly, generation two, generally salvation is for a better life now. And just so you're clear, salvation doesn't necessarily promise a better life now. Um, we didn't ever read it this, this weekend or anything, but you just look in the book of Acts and, and, and Stephen. You know, he, he gets saved in Acts, you know, when, when the apostles are preaching early on in Jerusalem after the resurrection. And then Stephen's all excited and he goes out there and preaches. He didn't get a better life now. He got stoned to death while Saul, soon to be Paul, was standing by holding the coats of those that were stoning him. How does he get a better life now? He didn't have one. There's no promise of a better life now. There's a, there is a promise of a better life to come. But I'm telling you what, he says he'll walk through uh, the problems with you. And he promises never to leave or forsake you. But not necessarily going to make your life all fun and easy right now. That's not the promise. Um, and then... Generation 3 think there's no need of salvation. And this will tie in a little bit to this morning. The Generation 1, they love the law, the Ten Commandments, and use it lawfully. To use it to witness with their friends, to prove that they are sinners and need a Savior. Generation 2, make void his law or forget it. Or don't really utilize it. Don't think it's relevant for today. It's old, old stuff, not relevant anymore. And then Generation 3, they don't even know the law. I'd like to ask you this. How many of you know the Ten Commandments? You don't need to raise your hands, but do you even know them? Have them memorized? I'm telling you, I posted them in my house for the express purposes God says in the Old Testament. Post them in your house. Talk about them with your children. Make sure they know them. And I'm telling you, you should know them. I challenge you after this camp. Go memorize them. It's not that hard to memorize Ten Commandments. It'd be good to hide them in your heart. Um, where am I? Let's see here. Did I go over what Generation 3, they don't know the law? Did I tell you that? Okay, so moving on. Generation uh, 1, they're 100% sold out for the Lord. Generation 2, unfortunately, they're carried, they care most about their right appearance. They don't want to be too fanatical. They want to just, you know, let's not rock the boat too much. We just want to look good. We want to look like a Christian. But they don't want to be too fanatical. That's a little out there. And then generation three, they have no concern at all for obedience. They're not even trying. Generation one, read their Bible daily without fail. Generation two, read their Bible some. Generation three, never read their Bible. I hope you're starting to maybe see what chair you might be sitting in. And I'm just telling you, if you're a Christian... There's not an excuse to not read your Bible every day. You're not a 
four-year-old anymore. All right? And I'm just telling you, who in here has forgotten to eat for two days in a row? And yet, Job said, I believe it was Job, I, I desire his word more than my necessary food. This is our spiritual food, and we should eat it daily, and we should be hiding it in our hearts that we don't sin against him. But I'm telling you what, this whole idea that, oh, I, I read my Bible five days last week. Okay, did you fast the other two days then too? I doubt it. My point is you're not forgetting to eat. And so you got to ask yourself, are you alive? Because see, one of the main things of telling if people are alive is they have an appetite. If they don't have an appetite, maybe you're not spiritually born. It's really the issue. The Bible literally says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. I mean... We just watched Lily back there uh, eating like a king when, when we're, you know, after our lunch. Because you know what? She's a newborn baby and she desires food. She doesn't have to be, you know, told to do this. She just knows she needs food. And so she eats. And I'm just telling you what? We should eat if we're alive. And if you're not eating, I'm telling you, danger signs should be going off in your heart. Saying, why don't I desire this? Yeah, why don't you? Good question. Um, and then, of course, I don't know if I gave you third generation. They never read their Bible. Did I give you that yet? Okay. Generation one, they desire holiness and godliness. Generation two, have a form of godliness. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, 5, if you have a chance, if you could turn there, I'd like you to go there. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. This is a passage where it's talking about the last days and what it's going to be perilous times are going to come in these last days. Perilous. That means dangerous. Because people are going to think they're in one chair when they're in another chair. And that's a dangerous time. But perilous times are going to come. And look what it says in verse 5. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And Tim, Paul warns Timothy, hey, from such you turn away. Danger zone. Those people are faking it. They're false brethren, probably. Get away. Just be careful with them. They just have a form of it. They're putting on a show for you. Let's not put on a show. We want to be genuine. Uh, generation three are just godless. Okay, back to column one. Chair one, they're committed to the Word of God. To Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, by the way. Uh, generation two, they're committed to the church. They're all about the church. We're, we're going to go to church. Generation three are forced to attend until old enough to say no more. That's sadly what happens. And that's kind of what I was alluding to back when we were at church going through that. Remember I mentioned that book called Already Gone. There's already the statistics show there's a lot of kids that are just waiting to get out and say, I'm done with this church thing. This is a bore. And that's why I wanted to go over that with you so you knew, listen, this isn't boring. This is real. We have a lot of reasons to believe. If you're chucking it, it's, you're chucking it and you have nothing to turn to because I only know of one man that has the words of eternal life and it's Jesus Christ. So, back to column one. Uh, chair one, boldly share their faith. Chair two, they like to be silent witnesses. Silent witness. And you know what? How, how many of you have smoke alarms in your house. I hope most of you do. Well, what if they were silent alarms? Would that be helpful? 
No, you're going to die anyway. And I'm just going to tell you, you shouldn't be a silent witness with your friends or, or family or anybody. You need, to be a, you need to be a vocal one. You need to actually speak what we've been commanded to speak. Um, we, we ought to, to preach the gospel. And then chair three, they're the wicked needy warned. Chair number one, they're unashamed. Turn to Mark 8. It's too good not to see. Corey's been talking about this after a couple of my messages, so this is just a great verse to maybe even memorize. Mark 8 and verse 38. We should be unashamed of him and his words. And it says in Mark 8, 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Boy, does that not describe our country right now? Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We should be very, very thankful and unashamed of his words. They saved our souls if we've cried out to him and asked him to save our souls. Um, and we believe the gospel. Okay, so chair one, unashamed. Chair two, they are ashamed. And chair three, they're indifferent. They just don't even care. Chair one, they have intimate fellowship with God. Chair two, if they can get to this point, they have a brief prayer at meals. And chair three, they have no thought of God at all. Chair one, realize that they are exceedingly sinful. It's exactly what it says in Romans 7.13, and it's what I tried to go over with you this morning to get you to realize how exceedingly sinful we all are before God. None of us can say, mm, doing pretty good. No, 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 no. We're all doing very, very bad. Um, so we're exceedingly sinful and think we are. Chair two, they think sin is a little thing. Sin is a little thing. And chair three, have no concern about sin at all because everybody does it. I want to read you a little devotional written by a, what is a man known as he's, he's Charles Spurgeon. He's, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. He lived in the uh, mid to late 1800s. All right, I'm telling you, he, he wrote this. He talks. Sadly, our English language is pretty pathetic these days. We've kind of dumbed it down for everybody, self included. I can barely understand what he's saying sometimes because he's uh, just. We, we just, we're, we're stupid today. I'm sorry to tell you that. Um, but I've kind of taken out some of those and tried to make it to where we could all understand what he's saying. But I want to read this to you. This is powerful. Beware of light thoughts of sin. At the time of conversion, the conscience is so tender that we are afraid of the slightest sin. That's right. But alas, very soon, the fine bloom upon these first ripe fruits is removed by the rough handling of the surrounding world. It is sadly true that even a Christian may grow by degrees so callous that the sin which once startled him does not alarm him in the least. By degrees, men get familiar with sin. The ear in which the cannon has been booming will not notice slight sounds. At the first, a little sin startles us, but soon we say, is it not a little one? Then there comes another larger and then another, until by degrees we begin to regard sin as but a little thing. And then follows an unholy presumption that we have not fallen into open sin. True, we tripped a little, but we stood upright in the main things. We may have uttered one unholy word, but as for the most of our conversation, it's been consistent. So we throw a cloak over it. We call our sin by dainty names. 
Christian, beware how thou thinkest lightly of sin. Take heed lest thou fall by little and little. Sin, a little thing? Is it not a poison? Who knows its deadliness? Sin, a little thing? Do not little strokes fell lofty oaks? In other words, taking an axe just takes a little stroke at a time and then you can take this huge tree down. That's what a sin will do to you. Will not continual droppings wear away stones? Sin, a little thing, it girded the Redeemer's head with thorns and pierced his heart. It made him suffer anguish, bitterness, and woe. Could you weigh the least sin in the scales of eternity, you would fly from it as from a serpent and abhor the least appearance of evil. Look upon all sin as that which crucified the Savior, and you will see it to be exceeding sinful. Wow. And that's powerful. And I'm telling you, don't think of sin as a little thing. It's a big thing. And we should be afraid of it. Just like, I'm sorry if there was a snake in here, I have a feeling a lot of us, including the men, would be screaming and being up on our chairs. And that's what it is. I'm telling you, it's like a serpent. Sin will destroy. So, sin's not a little thing. Okay, chair one, they love much. Chair two, they love little. And chair three, loves none. I wish I had time to go to Luke. We don't have time to go there, but that's a great story. Uh, chair one, they're sensitive to sin. Chair two is tolerant of sin. And chair three, they enjoy the pleasures of sin. But I have news for you, it's only for a season, the Bible says, before judgment comes. And I just wanted to re rehash this or go circle back. I know I was very hard this morning on the whole issue with respect to like pornography and all those sins that can really grab a hold of your heart. I want you to know you can be delivered from it. There is hope in Christ. There's a way to overcome it. It's not, you're not done. You just need to like cut the head off the snake. You can't let it out anymore. You have to be done with it and you have to stop and you have to seek God and read his word and get help with this. Okay? I'm just telling you, there's hope. So don't give up. You have to fight it though. Be sensitive to sin. Okay. Uh, chair one, they have a tender conscience. Soft. They're soft towards the things of God. Chair two, they have a seared conscience. When you sear something, it's like you burned it and it's not, it doesn't have feeling anymore. Don't sear your conscience. That's exactly what we're warned about in 1 Timothy 4.2. You might want to write that verse down next to seared conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2. And then chair three, they have a defiled conscience. And that's Titus 1.15 if you want to write a little verse next to that one to look up later. Chair one, they examine themselves. They want to see whether they're in the faith. Are they genuine? They look at their lives and they try to match it up with the Word of God and say, yeah, I'm in the faith. Absolutely, I believe. I'm, I have the fruit. I have fruit that can prove this. Because the Bible says you'll know them by their fruits and the fruit of the Spirit should be in you if the Holy Spirit's taken up residence and you have now become a temple of the living God. Um, tender. Where am I at? Am I on the conscience here? Oh, examine yourself. Sorry. Yeah. Um, chair two, they assure themselves. They, they're, they're trying to constantly say, oh, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I prayed a prayer back when I was in VBS. Okay, if that's your only hope, you might want to examine yourselves according to what your life is with respect to the fruit of the Spirit and the fruits of righteousness and the fruit of good works and the, uh, and the fruit of repentance, which should be in your life. There's like five different fruits that you can just look up, not to mention the nine fruit of the Spirit. They should be evidence in your life of this. Don't just assure yourselves, you're fine, you prayed a prayer. No, no, no. 
It's more than a prayer. Being born again is an experience. I'm telling you, 10 weeks ago, Jamie just had a baby. I'm telling you, it's a big deal when you have a baby, isn't it, Jamie? It's not just a, a, a whim. There's a lot of pain and anguish that go through with it. Same thing with being born again. I'm telling you, it's not as simple as, oh, I prayed a prayer. Woohoo, I'm saved. I'm pretty sure it's not quite that easy. It's a simple thing to do, but God desires a brokenness over sin and a contrition in your heart. And he says, if you cry out to me, you better believe I'm going to save you. But there's some pain involved there. So just like there's birth pains, there's born again birth pains. Um, and then chair three. So you have examined themselves, assure themselves. Chair three, deceive themselves. Typically by saying there is no God, which we covered in depth. Chair one. They're clean on the inside. They're worried about their inside. Turn to Psalm 51. And I'm just telling you, if you're broken over your sin right now, Psalm 51 is such a great psalm to get alone with God and just read and pray it back to Him as you're reading it because this is the words of David after he was caught in sin with Bathsheba. He had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, a woman not his wife. He was, she was the wife of Uriah. And after he was caught, confronted, he was broken over his sin. We're going to talk about that a little more in a bit. But Psalm 51 is what he wrote and what he uh, prayed back to the Lord. We're going to read just a little bit of it right now. Look in verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the where? Inward parts. And in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I tell you, you want, to have, you want to be clean on the inside. Chair two, they're worried about being clean on the outside. And that's kind of pharisaical. Remember, that they're worried about the outward, all about the outward thing. And that's a Matthew 23. You can read about that. Chair three, they're just filthy and unashamed. They drink in iniquity like water and they're okay with it. They think it tastes good. But one day it's going to turn on them. Just like in that radium girls, remember? They step licking and licking and then they're, it's just going to take over. And it's only pleasurable for a season. Okay. Uh, chair one, they are hot, on fire for the Lord. Chair two is lukewarm where Jesus says, I want to spew you out of my mouth in Revelation chapter 3 when you're lukewarm. And chair 3 is cold. Cold towards the things of the Lord. They have no, no desire for anything related to the Lord. Chair 1, they're all about sacrificial giving. Chair 2, it's all about dutiful giving. No joy. They give sometimes, but it's out of duty. They feel a sense of like they have to. God says he loves a cheerful giver. Chair three, selfish. They don't give at all. They're all about self. They're going to keep their money. Chair one, they ask, and this is so important, you guys. Chair one always asks, what's right with this? Chair two, they seem to always want to ask, what's wrong with it? How many of you have ever asked your parents that one? What's wrong with it? Why can't I do this? And I want to ask, well, what's right with it? Why would you do it? Why should you? And chair... Chair three, they question nothing. They just do it. They've got the Nike thing going on. 
time is it now? What time? Okay. Chair one avoids alcohol like the poison it is. Chair two socially drinks to not offend those who do. And chair three gets drunk and calls it having a good time. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs 23. Such a powerful passage with respect to the use of alcohol here. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You do not want to be unwise. And I'm, I'm here to warn you guys, I know when alcohol starts, it's right at your age. That's when you start dabbling in it and experimenting with it. And I'm telling you, thankfully, God saved me out of that culture. I went to Ohio State. I never one time set foot in a bar. And I wasn't even a Christian at the time. But I just knew I watched my sister destroy her life. And to this day, her life is an utter mess, sadly. And it breaks my heart to see it. Three marriages later, and it's just, I don't even want to get into the other stuff. It's just sad what's gone on in her life. But it started with alcohol, and she tried to get me to do it. And I remember she brought it in a trunk and I'm out with my friend and she made me try it. That's the last time I've had it that I'm aware of other than medicinally. And I, it was kind of disgusting and I was like, what are we doing? And then I watched her ruin her life. And I've stayed away from it just out of, well, I learned from her mistakes. Well, I didn't even have a Bible conviction about it. I was just like, I don't want that to happen to me. And I'm here to warn you, just stay away from it. And the Bible warns you, you certainly can be warned. And I'm going to do it right now in Proverbs 23. It says in, look in... Uh, Look in verse 20. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Drop down to verse uh, 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup. That's speaking of fermentation, when it turns into alcohol. When it moveth itself aright, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They've stricken me, thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. I'm just telling you, that I'm going to quickly go over 10 factors for why you should abstain from alcohol. And this is going to come fast and furious from this passage, but I want you to listen. And I'm doing this. I wasn't intending to do it, but I think we have to do it because I want to warn you guys, stay away from it. it just, it's just a gateway drug to the next drug, into the next drug, into the next drug, until you destroy your life like every other Hollywood star, only you'll be poor because you can't afford it. First, first factor is it's misery. It brings misery. Look in verse 29. Who hath woe and sorrow? It's people that do this. Abuse alcohol. It's all woe and sorrow. Um, I'm just telling you. It's broken homes. Parentless children. We have a failing country. All, all really due to this. Next factor. Uh, also in the same verse. It's contention. It's the contention factor. Who hath contentions? How many times do you see drunk people when you're at a football game and they're drinking all their beer and there's fights breaking out? It just causes contention. Um, 
You have number three, the foolishness factor. Look in its same, same verse, number, letter D, uh, the, or the, the second next thing down there. Um, who hath babbling? It's, it's foolishness. You babble. You have slurred speech, giving the appearance of honestly stupidity. You ever seen a drunk person? They just, they're, they're dumb. They look stupid, and they act stupid, and then they babble. Uh, the end of verse 29. Who hath wounds without cause? There's the destruction factor. I'm just telling you, I work in the transportation industry. I'm a civil engineer. I have to investigate every fatality in the seven-county area that we have. And I would say 80 to 90% of them have to do with drunks or drugs, you know, because they're uh, out of their mind and they, they generally don't wear a seatbelt because they don't remember to do it and they shouldn't have been driving to begin with. But I'm just telling you, over 400 dead each week in crashes due to this. And one in 19 people, just know this, who start drinking alcohol become a drunkard. So don't gamble with that. Um, then you have the mental anguish factor. The, look at the, the end of verse 29. Who hath redness of eyes? You know, people drink to have a good time, but then they can't even remember that they had a good time. It's the whole issue. And then you have the health factor. Look in verse 32. And at the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an, ad, uh, an adder. You know what that is? Those are poisonous snakes, snakes. And he likens alcohol to that. Because you know what alcohol is? It's a poison. It literally is a toxin. In fact, they say you're intoxicated. I'm telling you, there's so many liver diseases out there that could be avoided because they just abused alcohol their whole life. Same thing with, it's the leading cause of cancer in the mouth, in the throat, in the esophagus. It's the leading cause, alcohol use. They don't tell you that, but it's true. You can look it up. So there's the health factor. Uh, there's the immorality factor. Look in verse 33. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. You know what? Immoral behavior and speech are the result. If you want to have a godly marriage, stay away from alcohol. You're not going to behold strange women with your eyes. You're not going to make stupid decisions and leave your wife or your husband because you're drunk. It's just stupid. Then you have the instability factor. Look in verse 34. Yea, and thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. In other words, it's like you're on a boat and you're back and forth, and that's exactly what they are. They're all walking like this because they can't... It's like they're walking like they're on the sea, and yet they're on stable ground because they're instable. And uh, then you have the insensibility factor. You can't even sense, your senses have been dulled. Look in verse uh, 35. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. Isn't that weird? You, you wake up and you have these, <laughs> but that's what happens. You, you wake up and you have this hangover, I guess. I've never had one, and I'm glad I can say that. Might shock you, but it's true. I'm 51 years old. I've never once been drunk in my life. Don't ever plan to be. I'm thankful that God's preserved me from that garbage. And uh, I'm just telling you, uh, you just don't want to touch the stuff. And the last one is the addiction factor. Look in the last verse of 35. And I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. And don't be, don't be uh, unwise and think you won't be the one addicted to it. You'll wake up and you'll think, yeah, let's do that again. And then you just get drunk and you start the whole thing over again. It'll ruin your life. Stay away from alcohol. So there you have it. There's my little quick thing on alcohol. Um, let's move on. You dress, uh, chair one, dress, dress modestly to please God, framing the face, not the body. I'm just telling you, pick your outfits, ladies especially, but guys too, frame your face. 
That's what you should draw attention to. Your body is for your spouse. And uh, that's what I'd recommend. If you're a chair one Christian, worry about that. Try to draw your spouse with your face and your personality and your character, not your body. Save that for marriage. Chair two, however, they dress to be accepted by others, and even though it may cross a line. And I just want to remind everybody, garden, when, when Adam and Eve fell, they were naked to begin with, by the way, and then they fell, and then they realized they were naked. And what did they cover themselves with? Fig leaves. And God said, uh, yeah, that ain't enough. I'm going to kill a lamb, and I'm going to cover you. And he made coats of skins. I'm just saying, I find that to be a reason that he made coats. He's like, I want you to cover your nakedness. So that's why we wear clothes today. And hopefully they're modest clothes. And then chair three, however, they dress like a harlot, causing many to sin. And Proverbs 7.10 literally says, there is, those, there is the dress of a harlot. We all know what a harlot looks like and dress like. Let's not do that. Okay? So let's just not do that. I'm not making some law. We're not legalistic about this. I'm just saying, frame your face. Let's try to draw attention to the parts of us that God wants to accentuate, not the body. All right? That's what I'm saying. Just be modest and not dress like a harlot. Let's not cross that line. And then uh, to finish up the column on the chair one, they are genuine. They are the real deal. Chair number two are just putting on a show. They're hypocritical. And chair number three are rebels and they're gut honest about it. And if you would, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. You see, chair one, that whole column there, I, don't, I want you to understand this and hear me. That is the normal Christian life. Yes. That is not exceptional service. Look in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Chair, uh, that whole column there, I want you to write under it somewhere. I want you to put reasonable service. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's reasonable. It's not exceptional. This isn't your amazing Christian column. This is reasonable Christian column. And Elliot, I'm about ready to do the uh, slides here whenever you're ready. So, chair one, I want you to understand, they're genuinely born again. They've been saved by the blood of the Lamb because they've called on Him in genuine repentance and faith. And God has moved in. He's now residing in you, and, he's, and you're now His temple. The Bible says He's purchased you with His blood, and He now owns you. <laughs> it's what He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And, uh, and, and He now is uh, in charge. Chair number two, however, or sorry, three. Let's go to three. We skipped two. I forgot about that. Chair three is lost. They're not born again, obviously, right? We showed that. They're just, they're not even thinking of God. They don't even realize they're wicked. They just are enjoying sin and they've kind of taken God out of the equation. And chair three, they're professors. And I don't mean college professors. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and under every good work reprobate. That's Titus 1.16, if you want to write that down. Um, that's what chair two is. Um, they're very likely just putting on a show. I'm not saying there aren't some people sitting in chair two, you know, 
may be saved, but they're professing Christianity. They may be saved, they may not. Uh, that's between them and the Lord. I don't really have any access to the book of life. Only God has access to that book, not my job. But I'm just telling you, it's your job to know it. God says His Spirit will bear witness with your spirit whether you're His child. That's in Romans. And I'm telling you, you can know if you're saved. But you have to do the own examination of yourself to see whether you're in the faith by looking at your life, matching it up with Scripture. And that's what I'm challenging you to do today. Because you don't want to be just a mere professor. Because if you run over to Galatians chapter 4, uh, I don't know where you were. You're in Romans. Go to your right a little bit. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, the fourth chapter. Paul, writing to the Galatians. See, the Galatians, the whole book is really written to them because they started to add works and that they thought, oh, I have to do something to keep myself saved and to do the right things. They started to do that, and he's condemning them. He's like, what do you mean? You're so... Look in, verse... look in chapter 1. Let's just look there. I'm sorry, I know it said 4. Go to chapter 1. Look in chapter 1, verse 6. Paul, writing to these churches in Galatia, and he's like, he's hearing that they're trying... They're now being circumcised because they think, well, I've got to do that to be saved too. I don't want to not get circumcised. I think I better do that too and, and, and make because Christ's blood wasn't enough. I want to make sure I make it. And he's like, verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto, what's that word? Another gospel. Verse 7, which is not another. In other words, it's not the real gospel. It's not the one that's going to save you. But there be some that trouble, and, trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have, we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. And he then he repeats it. And I'm just telling you, he was not happy that they're adding works to this salvation that God provided freely to them because it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right? It doesn't mean we don't do works. I think I proved that in column one. Our work should match our life. We should have a change in our life. But not, not in order to bribe the judge of the universe or to please him, like to try to earn our, our entrance into heaven. No, it's because of how great he is and what he's done for you on the cross. You do it out of a gratitude. I want to please him because of how I mean, he, he died for my sins. Of course, I'll do everything I can uh, to please him, but not to earn his forgiveness. That's been given freely. Um, so, Galatians 4 now. I want you to see this too, because this is what Paul says to them. And this is what I say to those sitting in chair too. Verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice. He wanted to be there so he could raise his voice at them. And so he could see how serious he was about this. And look what he wants to say to him. For I stand in doubt of you. He was doubtful that they were even Christians at this point. He's like, I don't know that you understood the real gospel. I want to get there and change my voice because I stand in doubt of you and your doctrine on this salvation thing because you're trying to add works to what Christ finished on the cross when he hung there. And the very last words he said on the cross was, It is finished. Paid in full. It's paid in full. Your sin debt has been paid in full if you want to access it through repentance and faith in the Savior. So that's a big deal. We don't want to be sitting in chair two and just be professors to where, because you should stand in doubt of yourself if you are. You want to be a chair one Christian. And I mentioned this earlier this morning. Chair one, we do, we sometimes fall into sin. I'm not going to lie. We're not perfect. 
Not yet. We're going to get perfect bodies one day, a glorified body. But see, that's the thing. We just fall into sin. We don't dive into sin. You can fall into sin, but you don't want to stay in the swimming pool of, swim, uh, of sin and just swim around for a while. No, no. If you fall in, you get out and you dry off real quick and you repent and you get right with God. See, hypocrites, chair two and chair three, dive into sin and stay there and enjoy the swim. And I'm telling you, get out. Get out. Um, it's just uh, it's something you must do. Um, okay. We're going to look at some biblical examples of generational drifting from God, and then we'll wrap up. We've already covered a little bit of this, but the first one we're going to look at is David, his son Solomon, and his son Rehoboam. Look in Psalm 27, if you would. Psalm 27 and verse 4. King David, he's known as the man after God's own heart. And he said in verse 4 of 27.4, he says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. However, one day, he wasn't. He was dwelling at the top of his house, and he was uh, beholding the beauty of Bathsheba, and then he sent to inquire of her, and he had an adulterous affair. So he didn't actually follow what he said here in Psalm 27. But tell you what, when Nathan the prophet confronted him, and I want you to run back to Psalm 51. We were already there once, and I showed you some of what he said. We're going to read a little bit more in, chapter, in 51 verse 1. You'll see what David, David's heart towards God when confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. He said, Have mercy upon me, O God, verse 1, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. I'm telling you that... That's the heart you want to have regarding your sin before God. Um, look in verse 16 of the same chapter. He says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I'm telling you, if you go to God with a broken heart and contrition over your sin, He won't despise it, you guys. He'll hear you. And he'll 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 make you he'll make you right with him. That's how that's how great our God is, and he's provided a way through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to do that. So David he was committed with his heart, and that might be a blank. I'm not sure. Is that a blank? Yep. yep. Committed. David was committed with his heart. So he had a son named Solomon, and I need to show you this. Turn back to First Kings 11. Solomon is an interesting character in the Bible. Sometimes, you know, he's known as the wisest king and he prayed for wisdom and God granted to him wisdom liberally. But then you find out he sure did some abominable things in God's sight. And I really don't know what to expect with Solomon. I really don't. I mean, I, we'll find out when I get there. <laughs> but I know one thing. He certainly uh, seemed to be more of a chair two believer. Look in verse 1 of chapter 11, 1 Kings. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, one of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the, 
uh, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall ye come in unto, they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto all the, these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Something didn't get passed down to the next generation. Sadly, I think it was only the sinfulness of David that got passed down. And I don't want that to be you. I don't want you to be sitting here and think, well, my parents are Christians, so I'm good to go. Or my grandparents were Christians, and so are my parents, and I'm, I'm guaranteed. I'm good to go. No, no, no. You're in a very trouble, troublesome spot, actually. It's what I'm trying to awaken you to. And then I want you to see the grandson of David, Rehoboam. This would be Solomon's son. Run over to 2 Chronicles 11, because it gets worse. If he can get worse than Solomon, I'm not sure... Anybody should have a 700 wives and 300 concubines. Second Chronicles 11. And look in verse 21. And Rehoboam loved Mekah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and his concubines, for he took 18 wives and three score concubines, that's 60 concubines, and begat 20 and 8 sons and three score daughters. Wow. And Rehoboam made Abijah the son of Mekah the chief to be ruler among his brethren, for he thought to make him king. And he dealt wisely and dispersed all of his children throughout all the countries of Judah and Benjamin unto every fenced city. And he gave them victual and abundance. And he desired many wives, just like his father Solomon did. Verse 1, And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom, he had strengthened himself, for he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Look in verse 13, same chapter. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. For Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years, only seventeen years, in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess. And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. So he didn't even come close to, to seeking. So I didn't give you their blank on Solomon. Solomon compromised. David was committed with his heart, Solomon compromised, and Rehoboam rejected the faith of his father and his grandfather. Totally. Didn't even seek the Lord at all. He was, but he did strengthen himself, you noticed. He was all about himself. Church history example, we're not going to turn here, but you have the apostles would be first chair Christians. They knew Jesus. They were faithful to the end and all died martyrs' death. And then you have these, the, the church at Ephesus in the Revelation 2, you have them and all of a sudden it says they leave their first love, which is the Word of God. They didn't, start, they didn't examine themselves, and they, they lost their way a little ways. And then by the time you get to the Pergamus church period, you're married to the world. They literally married the whole church to the world that you can't even tell the church from the world anymore. You're a chair three. And I just want to warn you, sometimes the first chair can jump directly to the third chair. And you have this with Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu. Remember Aaron? He would have been Moses' brother. Well, Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire to the Lord and God asked them instantly. 
And that, we don't have time to turn to Leviticus. But then you had Eli with Hophni and Phinehas. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli was the priest. And he had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. And 1 Samuel 2, I'm trying to get there too. There we go. Look in verse 12 of chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, which would be devilish, and they knew not the Lord. I don't know how Eli did not teach his sons about the Lord, but they didn't know him. And yet they're somehow doing priestly work in the temple. And... Uh, or at this point, the tabernacle, I should say. But look in verse uh, 22, same chapter. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They were having sexual relations with women that came to offer sacrifices. This is what Nadab and, or excuse me, this is what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. I mean, how bold is that? They were using their priestly office to, you know, get women. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil doings or dealings with all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear you make the Lord's people to transgress. What a wussy dad. I'm sorry, that would never have happened in my home, I'm telling you. But Eli, that's all he says. Oh, you're doing, you shouldn't do that. Let's keep reading. Look in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In other words, you wait till you see what I'm about ready to do. People will fear. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house, which I begin, I will also make, or when I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth. Because his sons made themselves vile, and check it out, and he restrained them not. So Eli, he cursed his whole house and his generations forever because you know what? He didn't restrain them. I don't know why he didn't do it, but he didn't do it. So just a warning, you can jump from the first chair to the third chair real quick. So it's never though it's never too late to repent and get right with God and you see this in the story of King Hezekiah King Hezekiah was a good king and then you have his son Manasseh and then his son Ammon and then his son Josiah turn to 2nd Chronicles 29 and we'll finish up 2nd Chronicles 29 I love this story In 2 Chronicles 29, verse 1 says, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 5 and 20 years old. He was 25. And he re reigned 9 and 20 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he said, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. So Hezekiah, he got back to the basics and said, I want to be committed with my heart like King David was. Unfortunately, something happened with the next generation. Look in chapter 33. Hezekiah had a long reign. 
did the right things according to the Lord, uh, according to the Lord. And uh, look in chapter 33, his son though, Manasseh. Manasseh was just 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down and reared up altars for Balaam and made groves or planted bushes and everything and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Just like we talked about in Romans 1. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord whereof the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Oh my goodness. So he's building altars to false gods in the temple of God at this point. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with familiar spirit and with wizards. And he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol, which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. What an in-your-face to God. He put an idol in there, and he started worshiping it, where God said, no, no, that's where my name dwells. So you can bet the Lord's ticked at this point, and you're going to see something happen. Look in verse 9. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and do worse than the heathen, whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Drop down to verse 20. So Manasseh slept, he died, with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. And Ammon was two and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh his father. For Ammon sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh his father had made and served them. Verse 24, And his servants conspired against him, this is conspired against Amnon, and slew him in his own house. But the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. And look in verse, chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah who would have been the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and, David, and walked in the ways of David his father and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. And I just want to point out, so Ammon was this wicked, wicked man. Manasseh was. What happened with Josiah? How did Josiah do that which was right? And I'm going to show you because it's really cool. Josiah is maybe the coolest story in all the Bible. He ends up finding a book that they'd forgotten about. It was the Bible. They found it in the temple and he started reading it. And he said, what have we done? We're not doing what God said. We got to clean this up now. And Josiah cleaned it up. And God blessed Josiah hugely. But I want you to see where Josiah got his faith. And it was from his, great -grand or his grandfather, Manasseh. Manasseh did something, and I wanted to show you that. I skipped over it, and we're going to go back and read it right now. Look in chapter 33. Because Manasseh was wicked. He's the guy that made the idol, set it up in the temple of God. God confronts him, but I didn't read it because I wanted you to see this. Look in verse 11. Wherefore the Lord brought upon, the, from, uh, brought, upon, uh, brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God. And check it out. 
and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father, fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into the kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was, he was God. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering in of the fish gate and compassed about Ophel and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city and he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. And look over in verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spake unto him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel, his prayer also and how God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass and the place and the places wherein he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled. That's a key, key sentence. Behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. And that's the part I skipped over. Look in verse 23. It also says it again. Talking about Ammon, and he humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. I'm telling you, this is the key. This is why I read all that. And I know it was a lot to read, but I'm telling you, there's always hope. There's always hope if you will be willing to humble yourself before the Lord. The Bible says he exalts the humble. He exalts the humble. Turn in your Bibles and we'll finish here actually. 1 Peter 5. First Peter 5 and look at verse 5. says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That's the, to me, the key characteristic for any Christian is humility. It's humbleness. Are you able to admit when you're wrong? Are you able to go before God and say, Oh God, what have I done? I am so sorry. And I'm telling you, you do that, that's a good sign you're sitting in chair one. But when you can't admit when you've sinned against Him, you're a chair two or chair three, and you're in a danger zone. So, steps of action. Identify the chair in which you're currently sitting. Get up. Go to chair one. And allow others to experience chair one with you. That's the key. Make sure your friends can see that. So in conclusion, the fourth step can only happen when people understand who God is and who they are in the light of God's Word and then seeing God work in your life. Have you practiced Psalm 119, 9-11 in your life or just given lip, to us, lip service to it? And I listed it for you. It's on your sheet at the bottom. Look at it. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Is that your heart attitude towards God? Memorize those verses. Memorize all, a lot of verses so you can overcome sin. And then let's finish your, your conclusion. Your family and those closest to you 
will know the difference of whether you're giving lip service to it or you're actually practicing that. What you do in moderation, you guys, those you are investing in, and this will include all your future children, your, your future spouses, they're going to do in excess. Don't think you're going to be able to live a little bit and have a little bit of fun doing this sin. I'll tell you what, if you're going to do a little bit of sin there, let me tell you, your children are going to drive a Mack truck through that. And they're going to they're going to they're going to wish you make you wish you never did that. That's what we just saw happened in Ammon's life. I'm sure Manasseh was heartbroken that his son Ammon didn't catch his humility when he got right with God. He only caught the idolatry that he did in the temple of God. And he only served, I believe it was two years, and then he got killed. Because that's what happens. You have a short life when you just want to do the pleasures of sin for a season. So this is how the slide from chair to chair happens. That is the lesson of the three chairs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that everybody in here will examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith. That they would prove their own selves. That they might know that they're in a right place with you. And if they're not, I pray that they would be like Manasseh because it's never too late. They can humble themselves because that's what your word says. You're looking for humbleness. You're, you're, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. We love you, Lord, and I thank you so much for this opportunity to preach your word and to be able to declare what you said and how, how you work in, in people's lives. And I just pray that you'll continue to do so even after we dismiss today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.